the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, high Canada. It's Tuesday, February 20th. I am live. I'm Hugh Hewitt in the ReliefFactor.com studio out west, where it's raining again. Now, ordinarily on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I lead the show. I open the program with my foxnews.com column, which is today about Vladimir Karamurza, who is the highest profile Russian dissident left after Putin murdered uh, Navalny. And that column is important, and I will get to it. I pushed it out there. It's available at foxnews.com. You ought to be smart about who Vladimir Karamurza is and why Putin wants him dead and why he's in prison and been poisoned twice and went back like Navalny did because they're men of courage and they love their country and they don't believe Putin can last forever. But you need to know the Karamurza name, Karamurza name, Karamurza name in order to help prevent that from happening. We did not pay enough attention. Uh, and I'm as guilty as the rest of to Alexei Navalny, but we must of Vladimir Kuramurza, Kuramurza. And the reason is that Kuramurza is just going to get bumped off because Putin gets no pushback from anyone, anytime, anywhere. So I will come back to that column. I'm not going to read it for you now. I'll come to it later in the program. I want to start with the extraordinary events of the last 12 hours about which you were aware. Yesterday, Israel announced it's got a deadline for beginning the ground offensive in Rafah. Understand that they've destroyed all but three brigades of Hamas. And Israel released a story yesterday about 12,000 Hamas fighters are dead. Uh, The same number are wounded. And about a quarter of their troops are alive and still in fighting shape in Rafah where Sinwar is expected to go. This follows uh, an offensive that began three weeks after the 10-7 massacre and has gone on for about three months. Over 31,000 airstrikes in Gaza, and the tunnels are being systematically destroyed. If you read Lutwak or others, it's been an extraordinarily restrained, very carefully calibrated march through Gaza. It's going well. Israel will win. Hamas will be destroyed. And while the suffering of the people of Gaza is undeniable, it's on Hamas, and the IDF will do its best to help get relief supplies in, as it has been forever, but they can't allow them to be hijacked by Hamas, and they have to kill the rest of Hamas. The United States, being pushed by Joe Biden's political operation, is worried about the Arab-American vote, although... I don't hear anyone objecting to Israel other name Rashida Tlaib and the rest of the squad. And they hate Israel to begin with. 
There's no genocide going on. You hear the same old, same old. The nonsensical EU foreign minister, is. there is no such thing as a foreign ministry of the EU. Uh, it, it's Joseph Burrell guy. He runs around, he complains. You got the weirdo UNRWA people and their cover-up artists at the United Nations condemning Israel. But most of the world understands, and most of the Sunni Arab nations uh, say, yeah, we we, we got to rebuild Gaza and we need a two-state solution. But they don't say when, where, or how. The only people pushing Israel right now, seriously pushing Israel, is Joe Biden, Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, and their team. And here is the story that ran yesterday afternoon. I first saw it around 4 o'clock in the afternoon uh, in Great Britain in the Telegraph. Biden to go to U.N. Security Council to force temporary ceasefire on Israel, halt the Rafah offensive. And that's the Fox News story. But I saw it first at the Telegraph where the headline is, U.S. moves to stop Israel's invasion of Rafah. And I said, what? What is going on here? So, again, I, I saw it first in the Telegraph. I did not see it in the Times of Israel. I saw it in the Telegraph. I was doing, I do show prep A, late afternoon, West Coast, early evening, East Coast, and then go to bed, get up early, and check and see. So, I had begun the news sweep last night. And I see in the Telegraph this story, U.S. moves to stop Israel's invasion of Rafah. And I said, wait, what What in the world? Joe Biden pushing for U.N. vote, calling for temporary ceasefire over fears, Palestinian circumstances. And the Telegraph reads, the U.S. said on Monday, the U.S., no name, that Israel planned invasion of Rafah, quote, should not proceed under current circumstances as it sought to use the U.N. to stop the fighting. Joe Biden is pushing for United Nations votes on a temporary ceasefire in a break with the Israeli government as its troops prepare for an assault on the city in southern Gaza. In a draft resolution, somebody drafted it. You know, Joe Biden's been in Delaware having ice cream. He wasn't him. To warn that a ground offensive in the city would have serious implication for regional peace and security. The move comes as Israel's rebuffed efforts by frustrated Western allies to call off the planned invasion of Rafah. I'm unaware of which allies, other than David Cameron, who's kind of a moron, and Rishi Sunak bringing him back into office, is just is just a reminder that when Rishi loses the next election, he may come back around again as foreign secretary, so it'll be nice to him in exile. So then I go looking for the story at the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. The big three go to legacy platforms. It's nowhere to be found last night. Where do I find it? I find it at foxnews.com. Let me read it to you. Jerusalem. Uh, And this published at 6 p.m. East Coast time last night. So it's been around. The story has been around for 12 hours. It just went up at the Washington Post literally in the last 30 minutes and an hour ago at the New York Times. 12 hours late behind Fox News. The Biden administration is reportedly taking its goal of a temporary ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war to the U.N. Security Council as early as Tuesday. The administration is said to have proposed a draft U.N. Security Council resolution, which in part would call for a temporary ceasefire and call on Israel not to go to Rafah in the Gaza Strip. According to Reuters, the U.S. text states in part that it, quote, determines that under current circumstances, a major ground offensive into Rafah would result in further harm to civilians and their further displacement, including potentially into neighboring countries. 
You know, Harley, our lower third should simply say Biden betrays Israel. That's all we need to put up there is Biden betrays Israel. Because this is so stunning. Richard Goldberg, a former NSC official during the Trump administration, told Fox News Digital, quote, the United States should be vetoing pro-Hamas resolutions, not proposing them. By putting forward a resolution calling for a ceasefire and opposing Israeli military action in Rafah, the United States is effectively pushing for Hamas to survive to massacre another day. This is a complete betrayal of U.S. interests and values. Okay, I want to read that again because Richard Goldberg is so smart. The United States should be vetoing pro-Hamas resolutions, not proposing them. By putting forward a resolution calling for a ceasefire and opposing Israeli military action in Rafah, the White House is effectively pushing for Hamas to survive to massacre another day. This is a complete betrayal of U.S. interests and values. A senior administration official speaking to Reuters on the condition of anonymity. Again, ask yourself, why do they need anonymity? It's because they're embarrassed. This is all political. Realize that four out of five American Jews vote Democrat. And probably um, three quarters, not 80 percent, but 70 percent of supporters of Israel, Zionists who are not Jewish, vote Democrat. But we don't like this. We Zionists who are not Jewish. We think this is crazy. Uh, the Jewish state has hitherto opposed President Biden's attempts to torpedo its slated seizure of Rafah, where one of the last bastions of Hamas terrorists and hostages, including Americans, are believed to be on Friday, uh, are, are being held. The world must know and Hamas leaders know. If our hostages are not home by Ramadan, the fighting will continue and expand to Rafah. Benny Gantz, an Israeli security cabinet member, and leader of the opposition party, uh, said, Ramadan starts on March 11th, and that's actually not when the offensive is going to begin. The offensive is going to begin before that. Uh, Defense Minister Galan said, Hamas is left with marginal forces in the central camps and with the Rafah Brigade, and, what's between, and that's all that stands between them and a complete collapse of the military system, is a decision by the IDF to go in. And mean and a State Department spokesman told Fox News Digital, quote, We have been clear that a full-scale Israeli military operation in Rafah would not proceed until there's a credible and executable plan for ensuring the safety and support for more than one million people. Another State Department spokesman, the best way to achieve an enduring end, end to the crisis in Gaza is to provide for the creation of a Palestinian state. They are otherworldly. They're out of their mind. Joined by United States Senator Tom Cotton from the great state of Arkansas. Good morning, Senator. How are you? Hey, Hugh. It's great to be on with you. Uh, Senator, last night I was surprised as I was doing show prep to find a story in the Telegraph that said U.S. moves to stop Israel's invasion of Rafah. So I looked at the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, nothing. Then I found at Fox News, Biden to go to U.N. Security Council to force temporary ceasefire on Israel halt Rafa offensive and and still nothing all night long on the big three until this morning it showed up. Were you aware that the U.N. was floating a ceasefire resolution at the Security Council? Hugh, only through news reporting at places you mentioned, you know, in uh, British tabloids or the Israeli press um, or from social media that finally caught up to it this morning. I, I would say, Hugh, it's a shocking betrayal of Israel 
by Joe Biden and the Democratic Party, but it's not shocking to you. It's barely even surprising. I mean, remember, at the end of the Obama administration, they allowed the Security Council to pass an anti-Israel resolution, and now apparently they're going to author an anti-Israel resolution calling on Israel not to continue conducting this existential war of survival to root out Hamas from one of its last strongholds in Gaza, Rafa, um, and no small part uh, on the basis of electoral politics, Hugh, because Joe Biden is below 40 percent in the polls and he's worried about losing a couple cities in Michigan, a critical swing state. Again, I, I would say it's shocking, but it's not even surprising, but it's certainly disgraceful. Well, the end of the Obama administration, the resolution he referred to, he wasn't running for reelection. That was just his anti-Israel bias coming out. Here you've got Joe Biden. Don't American Jews follow this? Do, they, do you think they're even aware that they're about to be sold out by Joe Biden? Well, it goes much farther than just uh, American Jews. It's all Americans who stand with Israel, who recognize that Israel was the target uh, of a heinous attack on October 7th, the worst massacre of Jews since World War II. And if anything, the United, or the United States should be going to the U.N. Security Council proposing resolutions demanding that Hamas immediately release all of its hostages to include multiple American citizens. That's what every American, whatever their faith, should expect from the Biden administration. But, of course, that's not what we're going to get from Joe Biden. Now, uh, Senator, you're one of the few senators who've actually been in combat. You were in Baghdad during the surge with the 101st Airborne. You know what it's like when you finish uh, a battle for a city like Fallujah or Mosul against Isaac, Fallujah against insurgents. You don't leave the last major stronghold standing, right? You don't not go into Rafah and, and leave Hamas there or, the, or you haven't won. Yeah, of course not, Hugh. I mean, consider our battle against uh, ISIS. Um, we took back much territory from ISIS in Syria and uh, Iraq. And at one point, uh, their so-called caliphate was larger than the state of Indiana. When it finally was reduced down to just Mosul and a few other places, the battle in Mosul took many, many months. And unfortunately, thousands of civilian casualties because ISIS used civilians as human shields, as does Gaza. But we didn't stop. We didn't wring our hands. We continued until we finished the job. That's exactly what uh, Israel is doing right now under, frankly, much tougher circumstances than we ever fought in Iraq or Afghanistan because of the vast subterranean network that um, Hamas was allowed to build for 17 years when it controlled Gaza with the uh, United Nations and every other <clears throat> every other uh, uh, aid provider to Gaza looking the other way as they diverted things like cement and concrete from homes for families into tunnels so they could attack Jews. Now, this may be a trial balloon that Joe Biden is unaware of, as he apparently was unaware of the Chinese spy balloon. What do you think? Do you think that they would float this without the president knowing about it? You know, with this administration, Hugh, sometimes it's hard to tell. Um, but if it's a trial balloon, it should certainly be popped immediately. Uh, and it's ill-advised to even float as a trial balloon. It's like a couple of weeks ago when you had uh, a report that the administration was considering not just delaying the delivery of offensive weapons like uh, missiles, but even defensive weapons, uh, air defense interceptors, to protect civilian populations in Israel. Just the fact of floating such trial balloons undercuts Israel and, and emboldens Hamas and makes Hamas apologists think that if they just wait out Joe Biden for a couple more days or a couple more weeks, the United States will cave. And if you, I, I was saying this on October 7th and 8th, uh, the very first weekend 
uh, of this atrocity in Israel, that what Israel needs more than anything is time and freedom of action. Yes, it's important that we provide them with additional shells and ammunition, but what they need more than anything is time and freedom of action from the kind of inevitable, one-sided attack that they get from uh, the rest of the world and international organizations like the United Nations. But I had no confidence that Joe Biden would give them that time and freedom of action, despite his early and positive rhetoric. And that's, of course, what we began to see just weeks after the attack. Now, I want to switch to a second subject, which is uh, Putin. Putin killed Navalny last week. In this brand new book, I'm going to talk with Alex Ward tomorrow about his book, The Internationalist. Uh, It clearly went to press before 10-7 back in the era when Team Biden thought they were masters of the universe and were running the Middle East in 10-7, they didn't know about it. And in here, they say that at the Geneva summit in June of 2021, Biden confronted Putin on Navalny and warned him. Uh, Well, apparently Putin doesn't care what Biden thinks, because if this book is right and they gave him complete access, Putin blew off uh, Biden when it came to Navalny. Do you think it it helps or it hurts the other dissidents in Russia for Biden to speak up about them? Because I'm kind of afraid if Biden points at something, Putin kills that person just to show him he doesn't care what Biden thinks. Well, first off, Hugh, uh, I haven't read the book. I've seen the reports. I'm not sure I credit the reports. Um, Yet another example of how Joe Biden conveniently is tough and effective behind closed doors when no one's watching. Kind of like. Anthony Michael Hall's character in The Breakfast Club, who had many yeah. friends in the Niagara Falls area that no one had <laughs> ever seen or heard of. Um, but America can't afford another erased red line. Apparently, that's exactly what we're getting with Alexei Navalny. Uh, Joe Biden you know, said publicly um, that he would hold Vladimir Putin accountable. Apparently, he wants to take credit for being a tough guy and getting chesty with Putin at the summit three years ago about Navalny. And I have not yet seen a, a single action we've taken try to impose any consequences uh, for the brutal murder of Alexei Navalny. And that suggests that Vladimir Putin is not scared of Joe Biden. But then again, we knew that. That's why he invaded Ukraine. No one is scared of Joe Biden. That's why you have war and disorder breaking out all around the world. Now, now, Senator, you're on intel and on armed services, and you never violate classified doctrine. But do you know if it's possible as a matter of of, uh, public sources to disintermediate Putin from his assets, because I don't think we've done that yet. Just actually take his stuff. Well, I mean, Hugh, in a certain way, uh, it's hard to do that to Vladimir Putin personally, because Vladimir Putin has you know, a view of himself like the Tsar did, that he is the state, and that there is no distinction between Russian assets and, and Putin's own personal wealth. Um, one thing that we can start with doing is to disintermediate Russia for more than $300 billion sitting in the United States and mostly in Europe. Um, you know, I've long supported efforts by Western governments to seize those assets, as we did in World War II. Frankly, in World War II, we seized private assets of the citizens of belligerent nations and to use them not just for reconstructing a country that's in the middle of the war, but helping that country win its war. Uh, so that's one first step we could take is to show some leadership on that front. Now, the United States, again, doesn't have many of these assets, maybe just $5 billion of a 300-plus billion, but probably no European nation will take that action unless the United States moves first and provides them with the political cover uh, to see the assets in their borders. Now, Senator, the, the highest tree in the Putin forest usually gets shut down and chopped down. Right now, that's Vladimir Karamurza. 
He's the last pro-democracy activist. He's, he, he's a resident of America, but he went back like Navalny. And now he's up in the Arctic Circle in one of the concentration camps that, that he's running. Does it help or hurt him for the president of the United States to talk about him? Because I do worry that Putin just kills whomever Biden says is under his personal protection. Well, he probably is now the most prominent dissident in <clears throat> Russia. And I mean, there is a distinction between him and Alexei Navalny. If memory serves, he is a permanent legal resident of the United yes. States. And his wife and his children are American citizens. Yes. And therefore, we have an even greater interest in his well-being uh, than we did in Alexei Navalny's. I think it's a sad state of affairs, though, when we have to question whether or not it's good for an American permanent legal resident or uh, husband of and father of American citizens to have his name brought up by the American president. And again, it just goes to show how little respect and fear the world has for Joe Biden. Well, Leader McConnell's not afraid of Putin. I think Putin is afraid of Leader McConnell. I hope he gets up and speaks on behalf of Kara Mirza. Uh, last question, Senator. When are we going to get the vote on the Ukraine, Taiwan, Israel money? Because we got to get that money to Ukraine. They suffered a setback on the battlefield, and we need to resupply them. We do. The ball is in the House's court right now. The Speaker said he won't take up the bill the Senate passed. Um, I didn't vote for that bill because, one, I thought we had to do something to address our own border situation. But two, it also still included $19 billion of non-defense aid, um, which would be better left not spent in an era of trillion-dollar deficit and certainly not going to Hamas. But if you're going to spend it, better spend on things like you know three new submarines or 170 new F-35 stealth fighters or other critical munitions. So I, I hope the House takes up the bill, alters and improves it, and then sends it back to us and does so promptly. Now, has there been any indication that that is the plan? Because I think that is the plan, but I haven't seen it publicly discussed. I, I, I gather from my friends in the House that there, there are conversations right now going on. The House, like the Senate, is not in session this week. But conversations going on about what can garner enough bipartisan support to pass across the House of Representatives. Uh, again, the, the Speaker has made clear that what the Senate passed in its current form can't, cannot pass. Uh, so I, I hope that those negotiations yield fruit. Now, Senator, I don't know that Ukraine can win, given the manpower disparity, but I know they can lose. And if we don't get them anything, they will lose. Do, do you think they can win or is it just a question of them not losing? Well, it's going to be it's going to be a tough road to victory. And I don't think you're going to see in 2024 um, the kind of large scale offensives you saw in 2023 on either side. Um, what I think Ukraine needs right now is what people like Secretary of Defense Bob Gates have called for former Deputy National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley, the munitions uh, to build in an active defense to make sure they don't lose significant new chunks of territory while also gaining um, time to train at the battalion brigade level above and combined arms warfare. And they need the combined arms. You know, the Biden administration criticized them last year, but didn't give them the arms to win. And hopefully that sets up the condition for on the battlefield to push Putin under this back foot and give Ukraine a better stance for negotiations. Senator Tom Cotton, thank you for joining me this morning. Talk to you again next week. From Arkansas, we count on him for the latest on what's going on in the world. Thank you, Senator. I'll be right back. I want to remind everyone, a great sponsor of the program is MyPhDWeightLoss.com. Generalissimo went on that program more than a year ago, lost 50 pounds. He's kept it off. And uh, stress eating is not allowed, I don't believe, even though we're under a lot of... Uh, sure uh, tempted uh, to this week, aren't we? Uh, everybody is. I, but, but we don't... They, I'm sure they give you tricks of the trade to combat that, because that's one of the habits. You broke that habit. You're not going by 
Del Taco or Taco no. Bell. Have not. No. You haven't relapsed. Have not relapsed. And um, that is a, and it's healthy, it's wise, it's yes. productive. 864 644 1900. That's 864 644 1900. Good morning to you from the West Coast. Byron York is inside the Beltway. You know him as a Fox News contributor, senior political analyst for the Washington Examiner. Byron, I've been covering one story this morning. It broke last night in the Telegraph, then it got picked up by FoxNews.com, did not arrive on the New York Times and the Washington Post landing page until this morning. And it is this, that the U.S. is going to drop a resolution on the Security Council, the date unknown, that will force a ceasefire. I'm, I'm just sort of stunned because they gotta, Israel's got to go into Rafah if they're going to end the Hamas threat. And it is very apparent that Team Biden doesn't want him to do that. How do you think this is going to play with Democrats who support Israel? Well, I was hearing you talk about that with David Drucker. And I uh, thought about a Wall Street Journal story of, um, a couple of weeks ago about Michigan. So I'm just going to read you one paragraph from Michigan. The war between Israel and Hamas has injected a wrinkle into the race for Michigan's 15 electoral votes because of the state's large community of Arab and Jewish American voters. More than half of the residents of Dearborn, a city of more than 100,000, are of Arab American or North African descent. And this has put Biden, and and he really, really, really needs Michigan, needs to win Michigan. It's put him in a very difficult situation. Clearly, the activist, progressive wing of the Democratic Party, which is the loudest wing, uh, is pretty uh, anti-Israel, pretty pro-Palestinian in this war between Israel and Hamas. And Biden is trying to walk a line to keep them happy or keep them, you know, from deserting him um, and and keep the um, the support of uh, Jewish Americans in the Democratic Party. Now, I think David was smart to point out that when you talk, talk to uh, talk about non-Jewish Zionists, there are, there's another word for them, and that's Republicans. Huh. So they're going to get their vote anyway. Well, I don't know. I I do believe there are a lot of strong supporters of Israel who have traditionally, because it's been true traditionally, beginning with Truman, that Democrats were better for Israel on whole, at least in the first half of the state's life. Since the Yom Kippur War, that's not been true. But American Jews are liberal. Generally, four out of five American Jews vote Democratic. Let's focus on that for a moment, as opposed to Zionists who are not Jewish. What damage does this do with Biden's four out of five voters who are Jewish? Because they do support Israel overwhelmingly. I think it's um, uh, Biden's belief um, that he can call for a ceasefire. He can do something like this. And the ceasefire was is supposedly involving uh, negotiations over the hostages or something, which obviously hasn't worked up until now. I think he believes that uh, he can do that and keep the support of uh, most Jewish American Democratic voters. I mean, that's that's the that's the plan here. But this I mean, uh, this is one of these world events that just has uh, an unexpected effect on a presidential race. Well, you know, they have to make the argument that vote for us. Israel doesn't need to go into Rafah anyway. Does anyone believe that, Byron? It's like going to the gates of Berlin and well, not know, taking Berlin. When this uh, 
the the Hamas attack, the terrorist attack on Israel took place on October seventh. Uh, I remember going on Fox, maybe the next day or the day after, um, saying, "Look, there's a there's a cycle that takes place in in uh, with attacks on Israel in the Middle East, which is attack on Israel. Israel responds. People charge Israel with with over responding." Uh, with overdoing it, and that started pretty soon, and it's still going on, and it's only intensifying in some areas. Um, I don't, you know, there's there's not a lot that Biden can do to keep everybody happy in his Democratic coalition. So what you're seeing, I think, is this attempt to to walk the line and uh, say, well, you know, we're, we're going to call for a ceasefire, but we're going to go through the United Nations, and we're going to, uh, uh, it's going to be tied to release of the hostages. And she's trying to please everybody who, who feels passionately about this issue. The problem is the, the number of people in the United States who feel passionately about one side and the other side are both fairly significant numbers in the Democratic coalition. Now, I've got I've got here tomorrow. I'm going to be talking with Alexander Ward at Politico. He has a brand new book out called The Internationalist. And it's pretty clear Team Biden gave Alex access galore. And this is not the first Hamas Israel conflict of the Biden years. There was one in the first year where Biden intervened and it was rockets again. And the sort of thing that we're used to 10 seven is different. And I, I think most Americans have a view of Hamas, which is, and I, and I don't care about Rashid Tlaib, I just think most Americans think Hamas has to be done away with after that. And if they got to go into Rafah to clear out Hamas, they'll support going into Rafah to clear out Hamas. And that somehow the idea that Joe Biden is going to persuade Americans to leave Rafah as a safe zone with one quarter of the Hamas terrorists there and wait for another massacre? Do they? Do you think they can sell that, Byron? Can they walk that tightrope? No, I think that's very, uh, very difficult. I mean, I, first of all, I think most voters don't even have as detailed a view of the situation as you do. They're basically for Israel and against the Palestinians, and because Palestinians were the ones who attacked Israel. I mean, it's just pretty simple. Um, so I don't think they're going as deep into that. As far as the Tlaib stuff, that is interesting. You know, Tlaib is trying to convince Democrats to vote uncommitted in the upcoming Michigan primary. But, you know, there was an effort in New Hampshire when, where Biden wasn't actually on the ballot. Um, and they were trying to write in Biden. And there were a number of uh, the same kind of Rashida Tlaib group that was asking Democrats to write in ceasefire on the ballot line instead of Biden's name. And they got fewer than 1,500 people in the whole state to do it. So it gives you an idea that this is a loud, uh, it's a noisy minority in the Democratic Party. I think you're right. It's an online, absolutely an online thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Byron, yesterday the Post ran a story side by side uh, how Team Biden and Team Trump are attacking Michigan. And they didn't note, and you had to, you had to figure it out by reading the story, that the big difference between Team Biden and Team Trump in Michigan is that Trump shows up and Biden stays in Delaware. That's a pretty significant difference, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I think that um, that Biden has his view of himself as working class Joe and as union Joe, uh, and that he will—he just has the support, the traditional support of 
of lunch bucket uh, blue-collar blue collar workers for the Democratic Party. And it's just not that way. And obviously Trump won Michigan in 2016, didn't win Michigan in 2020, but could easily win it again um, because of people's unhappiness with Biden on issues that go far beyond the Middle East. It's not the, the, the election is not about the Middle East. So um, so I, I think Biden is 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 greatly underestimating the threat that Trump poses in Michigan. And if Trump wins Michigan. That could mean he wins everything else that he needs. I, I think he's greatly underestimating what happens when you can't campaign. And I actually think the age yeah. issue is worse than we're yeah. talking about it being. Do you agree with me about that? But yeah, I, I really you know, think I, it's worse. Yeah. And, you know, what? I think it was Ezra Klein who tried to come up with a clever, as he often does, some sort of clever answer to this question, saying that Biden is clearly a, a good president. He's not too old at all to be an excellent president. But he is too old to campaign. Campaigning is rigorous. You have to go out and go around and have long days, and Biden just can't do it. So they're trying to say that, well, Biden's really a great, great president, but he can't campaign. So Ezra came up with that? I think, you know, know, I shouldn't say this on the radio, but I believe, I think it was Ezra Klein, yeah. When when Ezra played the surfing Santa at my daughter's second grade school when he was in third grade, I always have the hardest time in America taking Ezra seriously because I've known him since he was in third grade playing the surfing Santa. Isn't that kind of a handicap? <laughs> I, I guess it is. You know, I'm, I met him. Um, uh, he was a young, young guy uh, blogging, and I met him at uh, the first it was called the Yearly Coast Convention. Remember the Daily Coast? Oh, I know. Voice, I know. Voice of the Net Roots, and it was in Las Vegas. And I met him, and he was absolutely passionate about universal health care. And it was like he's eighteen or nineteen. And I just thought, man, I just don't know that many. Oh, I've known Ezra forever. It, it, it's endlessly amusing to me in our online world. You don't actually have to have done anything anywhere at any time. To be a reporter who's got a New York Times column, that's just a, go Ezra. You buy, that's actually clever. So let's not age being inexperienced in any level of government, never having any clearance whatsoever. There's no bar to coming up with being clever on politics. Byron York, good to talk to you as always. Follow him on X at Byron York. I've got to uh, remind do the financial report brought to you by our friends at AmericanFederal.com, AmFed.com. Now, I don't know how the markets are going to be today, but a lot of people are buying gold. And if that, including central banks, if that includes you, call Nick Grovich and his team at American Federal, 800-221-7694. 800-221-7694. They're straightforward. I know Nick. They will deal with you fairly. They will deal with you objectively. Then just give them a call, 800-221-7694. 800-221-7694. Coming right back with David Drucker. Is there any chance that Democrats in the coalition stand up to Biden and say, no, Moss, we're done with you. You're selling out Israel. Because they are. They're selling out Israel. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. David Drucker is with The Dispatch, where he's their chief political correspondent. Good morning, David. Good morning, Hugh. I let out the story today with The Telegraph and Fox News scooping by at least 12 hours, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, 
on the Biden administration draft resolution imposing a ceasefire in Gaza. Now, it's both there and not there. Everyone talking about it at the State Department is using anonymity. Joe Biden, of course, has been on vacation all weekend. What do you think they're doing? I'm not sure. Look, it's it's clear that the president's position on Israel, which has generally been supportive, is causing him um, big problems inside his coalition, his 2024 coalition, because he's got a, a Democratic base uh, that simply does not look at Israel the way he does, the way most Americans do. Uh, and despite the uh, horrific uh, massacre that occurred on October 7th, perpetrated by Hamas, instigated by Hamas. Um, they look at Hamas and Gaza as the victims here and Israel as the aggressor. And so the president's been trying to balance this. And I think what he's been trying to do is sort of offer uh, fig leaves to his base that cares about uh, Gaza over Israel, but they've become with each each successive fig leaf, if you will, is a little bit less of a fig leaf. And so we have to ultimately see what he's going to do. But I think that this is where a lot of this is coming from. Secondarily, I'd, I'd say that that the concern that things spiral out of control in the Middle East, um, as Israel does what it needs to do to neutralize Hamas, I think is a concern of the administration because of how it impacts views of the president's leadership. And so I think they're trying to keep this thing sort of high and tight, if you will, and control just to what is happening in Israel, and they don't want it getting into other parts of the region. Now, I don't know if you listen to commentary podcast. I do every day. I think it's the best podcast out there for news. And for months, I've been back-channeling with the members and, and on the showtime. They're way too optimistic that Joe Biden is not going to stick with Israel. And they and almost every friend of Israel from the left to the right in the United States has said, no, look, he went to Israel. Look, you know, this is all trying to help him out. They can no longer say that. And Richard Goldberg, who's over on at the Foundation for Defense of Democracy, said this is crazy. So they really have crossed a line here, David. And I'm wondering, do you think they will hear from the Democrat members of Congress who are strong supporters of Israel? And there are a lot of them, like Chuck Schumer. Do you think they will hear from them yeah. today? Well, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they were hearing from them privately. I don't think you'll you'll see this uh, burst out into public because it's an election year and there are there are broader concerns. Like I, I, I think that it's obviously if you're trying to hold the Senate and win back the House uh, where you believe, of course, that uh, you'll be able to make policy that's better for, you know, you and your supporters, uh, both nationally and internationally, um, you don't want to do anything to further burden the president's reelection prospects, which are already burdened, as we all know. So I, I think these conversations are probably having happening privately. I would be surprised if if dissatisfaction to the extent it exists and it, it, it may exist at a low level. It may exist at a high level. But I, I, I'd be surprised if it burst out into the open, just given the delicate dance that the, the president has here. This, this reminds me, Hugh, I was thinking about this. If you remember during the pandemic, uh, President Trump had a, a very delicate dance. He had a, a, a base on the right, a committed base that did not like the idea of shutdowns and masks and other actions to mitigate the pandemic. And yet the broader public at the time, whether they worked or not, was very in favor of these things. And I, I think it was very hard for him to balance the two. 
And this is, I think, what uh, President Biden is trying to do with with Israel and the war in Gaza. That's a, that's a great analogy. It didn't work for Trump, by the way. It didn't work. But it yeah. also <laughs> it this issue has greater saliency. I would argue that among the people who are, at, are supporters of Israel, this issue matters a lot more than the masking issues that mattered among the anti-maskers. In other words, there are different issues, different population sets, but attachment to Israel, being a Zionist, I'm a Zionist, you may be a Zionist, I don't know. It, you know it's got nothing to do with being Jewish or not. It's just got to do with Israel's a democracy and our ally. I think well, that, that is far... Go ahead. That is, that is correct, but what I would say is uh, voters who aren't Jewish, who are Zionists, are much less likely to be Democratic voters today uh, whereas you're going to find a lot of Democratic voters who are Zionists, but the ones who are not Jewish um, are, are more likely to be Republican. And so I think what the president's trying to do, rightly or wrongly here, is like figure out how to keep his coalition together and how to keep people who will vote for Democrats as long as they show up in the fall. This is particularly salient in Michigan, where you have both a very a uh, big population of Jewish voters who are Democrats and a big population of uh, voters of, you know, ethnic Arabs, of Arab descent, Palestinian descent, uh, descent, but all over the Middle East who tend to be Democrats, at least post 9-11, that they're very concerned about them not showing up. Uh, I That might be true, but I will tell you this. I think American Jewry, specifically American Jewry, they cannot be happy about this. And traditionally, that's an 80-20 split Democrat. And when you start dropping U.N. resolutions demanding a ceasefire, you're going to lose those voters. Agree or disagree, David? Well, you definitely make it harder to keep them in the fold, and you need them to show up as well. It's why I brought up the Michigan uh, comparison, because there are so many Jewish voters in the Detroit suburbs. People talk a lot about Dearborn, Michigan. You ought to talk about Bloomfield Hills. Amen. I, I used to spend every weekend with my Jewish friends from Bloomfield Hills. David Drucker, thank you. David M. Drucker on Twitter. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Listen up, Catholics, American Catholic. Listen up, priests. Listen up, friends of Catholics, family of Catholics. Brand new book out there, True Confessions, Voices of Faith from a Life in the Church by my guest, Fran Mayer. Good morning, Fran. Welcome. Congratulations on the publication of True Confessions. You, I did not know until I read this, you, you spent 15 years as the editor-in-chief of a Catholic News Weekly. Which one? I didn't know that. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, National Catholic Register. I was there for 15 years as editor-in-chief. Holy smokes. And then 27 years in senior diocesan leadership. You've been writing as a Catholic public intellectual for decades. Now you put out true mm -hmm. confessions. Why now? Is it because we are in peril as a church in the United States? Well, part of it, you, is that uh, I'm, you know, I'm drawing toward the end of my career and I wanted to make sense of it. And the best way to make sense of it was to ask other people what their perspective on things was and, and then compare it to my own my own experience with Archbishop Shapu and, and, and other folks. Uh, but I also think that it's a point we're at a point in the country where people find it very easy to lose hope. And, and I don't think that's warranted. And I wanted to show the examples of a lot of different people who, you know, can have, are very their comments are very sobering sometimes. And they certainly have plenty of criticisms, but they're faithful people who are committed to the church, committed to their Christian faith and um, really create a sense of hope from their activism and their commitment to, to trying to live the gospel. There's no now, true confessions be, uh, is dropping in the first week of Lent. Well, OK, we just had the first Sunday in Lent. 
Did you intend that as a kind of Lenten devotional? Because I think it serves well that purpose. Yeah, no, I didn't intend it, but it certainly fits because uh, it's a time for reflection and repentance. And uh, we can always use a whole lot of that. And there's not enough of it in American culture right now. Now, any book that's got an intro by Archbishop Chaput and an acknowledgement of Father Fessio at Ignatius Press and Ryan Anderson is already going to win over a lot of our audience. But let's talk about the 30 bishops. I don't think I've read a book where 30 bishops have agreed to be interviewed anonymously and talk to you. That chapter, which I'm going to spend most of my time on this morning, and it's our first conversation of a few. How did you get them to say yes? Well, yeah, well, anonymity certainly makes uh, makes it a lot more uh, doable. And that was always my intention. But, you know, I think uh, a lot of the guys that I talked to, I met a lot of bishops during my career working for Archbishop Shapu. And if you manage to uh, stay employed for 23 years for a significant bishop, it means that you know how to you know how to handle sensitive information and, and treat people properly. So I think people the bishops that I spoke with. And they, you know, they were from 25 different states and, and one foreign country. I mean, they they, they already assumed that they would be treated um, respectfully and that um, I, I would observe what I said I would do, which was to keep their their identities, um, uh, you know, anonymous. So they spoke but, very they spoke very clearly. I mean, oh, I, it's I, so you know, fascinating. You, you would know. It's so fascinating. And yeah, the most striking know, thing you would know that. Mm-hmm. I What's the most say, striking thing for me? Yeah, the most striking thing is that all Catholics are obliged when they say the rosary to open up with praying for the Holy Father's intentions. And we all pray for Francis. Mm-hmm. But the most striking thing is of the 30 bishop, no one is a Francis fan. No one is going to condemn the Pope. But there is a distinct lack of enthusiasm for him. And here's what I took away. No one credits him with any vocations, whereas... All these 30 bishops are saying John Paul II and Benedict brought a wave of spectacular young seminarians into the church. Yeah, that's that's true. I think each of the bishops I spoke with, and they were all over the spectrum, you know, in terms of um, their cultural and political views. But I mean, they, they're all certainly faithful men of the church and very loyal to the Holy See. But um, I think the dominant feeling you uh, toward uh, Francis is one of um, puzzlement and concern for Francis's obvious dislike for the United States and American church leadership. I think that that puzzles them. Some of them, you know, a few of them were uh, quite irritated by it, but but most of them are just, you know, what are we doing wrong here? We're doing our best, and we think we, you know, the church in the United States needs a a, a more positive view from Rome. Now, I, I have five pages of notes, and here's what we're going to do. I'm going to talk with Fran off air and then play it for you tomorrow morning. In the meantime, go to Amazon, get True Confessions. It's got um, 11 chapters and afterwards an introduction, and that means you've got uh, 13 weeks of Lenten devotion there. We don't have 13 weeks in Lent, so you're going to do two to three chapters a week in Lent. But True Confessions just came out yesterday. You can order at Amazon. It'll be on your doorstep today. I've had the pleasure of reading it twice now, and I want to tell all my Catholic friends out there and those who would like to understand their Catholic friends what's going on in the church today. 
And if you're a cradle Catholic like I and Fran are, then True Confessions is really a necessary catch-up for you. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be back tomorrow on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. All of my conversation with Fran about True Confessions, by the way, will be on today's Highly Concentrated You podcast. But the rest of the interview will play tomorrow and Thursday on the Hugh Hewitt Show. This is a red alert for hardworking Americans who are tired of seeing their freedoms and savings threatened by the globalist agenda. Wealth Protection Research is on a mission to find whistleblowers who are exposing the schemes that threaten your financial security. We're talking about real patriotic financial warriors like Jim Rickards and Porter Stansberry. They're not afraid to tell it like it is, exposing how the system is rigged against you. Text IDEAS to 76626 to find out more. With the 2024 election Storming our way, your IRA and your 401k appear to be in the crosshairs. That's why we've compiled our three favorite ideas from Freethinkers. Don't wait for a knock on your door telling you it's too late. Get this critical report. Text IDEAS to 76626. The fight for your financial freedom is on. Text IDEAS to 76626 now for your free report. That's IDEAS to 76626. Standard text and data rates may apply. Welcome back, America. If you were listening to the radio yesterday, I was talking with Fran Mayer, my friend of long, long standing, who has a brand new book out called True Confessions, Voices of Faith from a Life in the Church. And Fran and I were talking yesterday about his chapter about the bishops. I'm going to come back to that, but I want to preface this. This is a longer conversation, Fran. Uh, I always write down favorite quotes and things like that, and I love what the Archbishop wrote. In fact, I didn't know this. I'm sure he's told me this 25 times. I didn't know that Francis, what St. Francis wasn't a priest. You know, and I'll bet you that's kind yeah. of going to be a reveal to everyone out there. And every time I see it, and then I must forget it, because that can't be true, right? St. Francis wasn't a priest. But boy, what a message to the lay world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's uh, actually the Archbishop... There, there's some evidence that uh, Francis was ordained a deacon, but the, the archbishop says that he doesn't believe that. The evidence is very thin. I mean, he was always basically a layman. And, uh, you know, the archbishop, uh, of course, is very, very blessed and happy to be a priest. But but uh, he has a particular interest in and in respect for lay people because um, that's where priests come from. That's where religious come from. You know, it's basic. The church is basically about lay people and their vocation to live the gospel. And he uh, believes in that very strongly. Now, Fran, my favorite line in the in the book, though, is from an African bishop unnamed who stands up, I believe, at one of the synods and says, uh, maybe you mm-hmm. gentlemen didn't get the memo, but Constantine is dead. <laughs> and so is his style of church. You want to unpack that for our non-Catholic listeners and those who don't know? Uh, they think Constantine is something you had to milk to make a chocolate. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, the, the idea that the uh, that the church has uh, significant, uh, significant enough cultural power to determine the course of politics and economics. Uh, we've lived with that for a very long time because Europe was shaped by Christianity and we inherited that attitude. And uh, religion's always been respected in this country. Uh, but that's changing. And we have to change along with it. And that requires a certain realism that is hard for us to uh, come to grips with. Much a lot easier in Africa where things are, are, are a mission church. Here we are comfortable and we're, uh, we feel 
entitled to a certain amount of respect culturally as a church. And I think that's passing away. And that was a real wake up call from that African bishop. Yeah, I'm jumping ahead here to where you wrote about Father Murray, the famous Jesuit theologian and scholar. He was worried in 1940 about materialism. What do you think Murray would say about 2024? Well, it would be a catastrophe. I mean, his attitude, you know, you know this, you I mean, uh, Murray was very uh, upbeat on America because he felt that even though it was a country formed by the Enlightenment and Protestant uh, faith, the Catholics could fit in here because we share a basic biblical heritage with with Protestants and and other Orthodox believers Uh, that that's um, that's evaporating. And, And Murray felt that America as an experiment only worked if we kept our biblical leaven. And as that disappears, well, then the best ideals of the United States disappear as well. And that we're experiencing that. And it's and it's very uh, it's very upsetting for a lot of people. Uh, It's upsetting because if you believe in heaven and hell or as the old saying said, every day you ought to think on four things, death, judgment, heaven and hell. We don't do that much anymore. And one of the bishops no, says the basic going. problem is we no longer believe in an afterlife. Do, do you agree with that, that Americans generally don't believe in an afterlife? I think uh, I don't think there is. I think the experience of most Americans isn't a rejection of faith, but rather a disinterest in it, a kind of tepidity that 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 people don't really think about things because they're constantly being stimulated to think about you know, new cars or gambling or whatever it is that uh, feeds their appetite. Uh, but we are all going to die and we all are going to be judged. And sooner or later, we have to face that. The sooner, the better in terms of uh, changing the way that we think about the world. Um, you know, we're being turned into uh, consumers rather than citizens. And I think that's bad for the country and it's certainly bad for the individual soul. Uh, well, I, I'm, I've, I've got it in my notes, but I'm going to go let you fill in the blank where it is. Someone talks about the shattering of the or the disappearance of the interior life of the Catholic who has not been formed by Catholic education, which leaves people mm-hmm. much more vulnerable to the uh, addictions of the Internet, whether it is pornography, gambling or simply wasting of time or anger. And I believe you wrote mm-hmm. the defining characteristic of the American culture is anger. And by the way, I agree with that. I had never verbalized that until I read it in True Confessions. It is. People are angry all the time. I try not to be angry, but I get angry all the time. I got angry on Ash Wednesday when they didn't have confessions. And I said, what in the world is going on here? And so we are yeah. we are given to anger now. At least I am. Well, you know, where, you know where that comes from? <laughs> Don't do this at home. Where that comes from uh, is that the uh, I, I was preparing for confession once, and I mentioned to uh, Sue Ann, or I brought the, brought to Sue Ann's attention, my wife's attention. You know, what do you think is the primary problem that I have? You know, don't do this at home, guys, because this you're going to get. The oh right no! Answer. Don't and never I, do I thought, this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the uh, I thought it was going to be like impatience or pride or something like that. And she said, "You're nuts. You have an anger problem." And the more I thought about it the truer that was. I mean, I have a lot of anger. And the reason I have a lot of anger, quite apart from uh, being, I suppose, part German and Irish, is is that uh, there's a tremendous turbulence and uncertainty in the culture that uh, I think has a lot of similarities to situations the church has been in in the past. I mean, in the, during the Roman persecutions and then the Arian heresy and then the Reformation. 
huge turbulence, huge cultural and other changes that that just make life very turbulent. And uh, it 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 upsets people and then they get angry and then they uh, become confused and despairing and it ends badly. So, I mean, the, the, the most important thing for us is to find an, an interior silence and Protestants and Catholics may do that differently. But, uh, you know, reading reading the word of God uh, for half an hour or 15 minutes a day really helps setting aside time pr- for prayer. I mean, if you're Catholic, Quite apart from mass, which is our primary means of worship, I mean, find time for uh, spending some time in the adoration chapel because it, it gives you it forces you to be quiet and to listen instead of just talk. And if you do that enough, uh, it, you you begin to become sane and human again. You know, the, the idea of reading scripture every day. I mean, I've been dealing with scripture my entire career, obviously, because I've been working for the church. But you I had never I had never sat down and read the Word of God, chapter by chapter, New Testament. And that idea came from a Protestant friend who said, you know, because I, I, I just mentioned that I had an anger problem, and he said, do you read Scripture? I said, well, of course I do, you know. But he said, no, I, I don't mean do you use Scripture, do you listen to it speak to you? And, and when you begin doing that, you really, uh, it has a healing effect on the soul. But you got to spend the time you got to set it aside for the solitude to accomplish that. This is why I think Father Mike Schmidt has done such a great service in America by putting the Bible on tape so people don't have an excuse not to listen to it every day. But there's an interesting double-edged sword about, and I love Father Mike, and I listen to the Bible in a year, and I think many people are. There's one bishop who says, we don't need more Catholic celebrities in high school auditoriums. We need more Catholics in church. And I kind of, that resonates mm-hmm. with me. But I also began to think, that maybe the Arthur Brookses and the Fran Mayers of the world and the Ryan Andersons, the very theologically sound laymen, have a bigger, bigger and more important job to do than in speaking on behalf of the church than our priests do. What do you think about that, Fran? Well, I think you know priests, uh, obviously in the Catholic tradition, are are highly regarded um, as a group. I mean, because they 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 are they are you know the uh, in persona Christi, they, they work in the person of Christ as an interme- as an intermediary. But, you know, most people find uh, the experience of other lay people um, be powerful in the way that they shape their own thinking. And uh, in the end, I don't think anybody's or very few people are converted by ideas. They're converted by the witness of other people. And if you have a, 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 a lay community that takes their faith seriously, that has a magnetic effect on other lay people. So lay people have a hugely important role. And, you know, Pope Benedict XVI said many times that the lay vocation is not some sort of second class Christian way of living your life. It's it's ninety five percent of Catholics are lay people. And uh, how we live our life has a huge impact on on uh, the way other people think about God and think about the church. So we have an obligation to take things seriously. Now, I want I want people to get a taste of the bishops. So I'm just going to do some random quotes here. Third bishop. There's a bourgeois quality to a lot of church life in this country, and it crippled us with dead spots. We need to be remembering that Christian life is a life of giving, a life lived for others. It's not a competition. It's not a race for comfort. Fifth bishop. We've created two generations of people who don't really know our heritage. The rosary of a man like Joe Biden is like an empty perfume bottle. Empty, but you can catch a whiff of the scent now and then. 
Bishop number seven, Francis has a distaste for America and its bishop that is really felt and unwarranted. Bishop 12, it's the stuff. He's talking about the culture. The stuff of which revolutions are made, the anger out there. Uh, does the Catholic Church even exist anymore? Bishop number 17, there's a great hunger for beauty out there, part of the extraordinary right. The sacramental imagination is still alive. The Lord continues to do his work. That's good. But then Bishop 18, no guarantee the church will have a big presence in the United States when Jesus returns. I think the manner of Pope Francis' governance is quite ruthless. And then a few bishops with whom I agree, so of course I'm going to quote them, confession, 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 confession. We need a lot more confession, and the church has got it down to Saturday between 3 and 4. And I'm always amazed by this, Fran. I'm always complaining about this. If it's a sacrament, why do we have it on Saturdays between three and four and nowhere else? Yeah, I, well, I agree with you. I think that preaching confession, preaching the sacrament of penance in the Catholic tradition is, is one of the keys to the renewal of the church. Because why? Because it forces you to examine your conscience and see who you really are and then try to make reconciliation with the Lord as, as part of your daily routine until until people are are catechized in that, we're, we're going to be in a tough spot because American culture tells us all the time that uh, we're already pretty good. And if we need anything, we need more stuff, not a repentance. And, and that's just not a Christian way of looking at the world because we are flawed and we always need to, we always need reconciliation, you know, and, and, you know, with God and with each other. So I agree with you. I mean, I think confession is, is kind of, uh, the overlooked sacrament in the Catholic Church because it it uh, it's kind of shoveled off until s- Saturday afternoon, which, by the way, is usually filled with all sorts of family responsibilities. So you never get around to doing it. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's just I, odd. Really, I, odd. I, I will come back to that again. Uh, this concludes part two. Part three will be tomorrow, so do not miss part three. The book is True Confessions by Fran Mayer. M-A-I-E-R. Go to Amazon. It's in bookstores everywhere. I don't think you're going to find it at the airport. Maybe you will. True Confessions is a sleeper. I think a lot of Catholics are going to go out there for Lent and read it. Back now with Fran Mayer, author of True Confessions, part three of our long interview about his brand new book. True Confessions is a book that every Catholic and everyone interested in Catholic needs to read. Voices of Faith from a Life in the Church. Fran, I want to go now to some of the priests you talked to. Uh, including Andrew Brownholtz, a veteran pastor of a suburban church, uptick in confessions. That's good. We talked about that in part two. But right before him, Father Eric Banneker made me think of something which I had not think of. He's a younger priest. He's a pastor. He does about a funeral a month. They're almost all African-Americans because he's got an urban parish, but it's gentrifying. So two out of three of his baptisms or three out of four of his baptisms are Anglo kids, And that's great. But the underscore is, I actually think maybe the Roman Catholic Church is the most integrated institution in the United States. Do you think I'm right about that? Well, it's close to that. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's happy with each other in terms of the operation, you know, because human beings are human beings. But I think that's actually true. And certainly the the church in the United States uh, has made a huge effort uh, to to, uh, encourage integration and racial peace. So, so I think, yeah, I mean, I, I believe that to be the case, you know, the church, the church, uh, isn't defined by its racial or ethnic qualities. And yeah. the, that's a real conviction Catholics. You also note that St. Augustine 
was not an optimist, but he was a man of hope. Every time I go to Mass, and there are a lot of people of all sorts of ages and variety of backgrounds and ethnicities, I am hopeful that the church can plant a flag and renew in America. It is renewing in Africa. It's exploding in Africa. And I am looking ahead now to the next conclave and hoping Mm -hmm. against hope that we bring out a young cardinal from Africa to lead the world. What do you think is going on inside the, the members of the church hierarchy about the world at large? It can't be the old socialism nonsense that, that the, the Holy Father sometimes indulges in. they got to know that's not the future. What do you think they think? Well, I think, you know, this, the, the recent statement by the, uh, the Castry for the Doctrine of the Faith on, on blessings, which, was, which just caused an uproar, I think that's an indicator that uh, there are a lot of uh, bishops' conferences and individual bishops who are unhappy with the direction of, of um, church leadership at this point. So uh, as the church declines in Europe and now and also in the United States, you're going to get a very different flavor from uh, places where there's a more vigorous Catholic and Christian presence. So, uh, you know, in terms of the appointments that Francis has made to the College of Cardinals who will elect the next pope, it's very hard for me to have an opinion because I don't know most of them. Uh, but uh, I don't think I don't think it ever works out in a conclave quite the way people assume it will. And so, uh, you know, Catholics say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit is going to be involved in this and, and we'll get the right guy. Ultimately, that's true. But but the, I think um, I do think the church is going to be very different in the future from the way we way we conceive it now where we assume that kind of an Anglo-American or a European-American dominance is going to continue. It can't continue. We don't have the numbers and we don't have the resources. But your deacons are so interesting. Now, I know a permanent deacon, Deacon Steve, and he listens to the show. I hope he's, he has served. You know, I've got like five parishes because I live all over the country. And one of my uh, parish churches, three different locations in Maine. And, and so I, I, I hear from all sorts of priests. Great. Not so great. The permanent deacons are smart guys. And your permanent deacons that you interview are just hell on wheels when it comes to Catholic culture and Catholic education. Do you think the rest of the church has figured out we got to stand by our schools as long as we possibly can? Yeah, I do think that. uh, I think most bishops and most Catholics understand the power of Catholic schools. You know this as well as I do, that... um, the problem with Catholic schools is, well, there's a twofold problem. Uh, they're staffed by people in some cases who uh, are well-intentioned but don't really know the faith that they're supposed to be teaching. I mean, the Catholic schools shouldn't exist if they don't communicate the Catholic Christian faith. Uh, so that's one problem. The other problem is is that, uh, it, that they're expensive. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they are very, very cost-effective in terms of the way that they use their resources. But... Uh, not a lot of people can can afford going to them because, uh, you know, the church has to pay a reasonable living uh, salary to teachers. And we don't have the resources that come from being able to tax, you know. So, you know, Fran, uh, if I if I ever had a chance to address the conference of bishops in the United States, and I'll never be able to do so because I've said so many bad things about their permanent staff, it would be. Hey, all of you guys, get together and pour resources into those states where universal school choice is now available. Everybody in Arizona can go wherever they want 
was $7,500. Ditto in Ohio, soon to be in Iowa. It's in West Virginia. It's spreading in Florida. Do the bishops ever figure out, you know, the, the, the point must be wherever you're allowed to land the resources. We, you know, instead of keeping uh, all the money in a diocese, let's support Catholic schools across the United States. Is there any effort to do that? Well, I think individual bishops. Remember that the, the bishops conference you uh, is is kind of a trade association. It doesn't have any governing authority at all. And so uh, basically it's a big alliance of guys who are very careful about maintaining their own authority in their own dioceses. I, it can issue counsel, obviously, and, and I think the bishops in general are very, very favorable to uh, the right kind of, of tax assistance. I mean, we don't want to become dependent on the government because that leads in a really bad direction. But giving people, giving parents uh, an authentic choice of where to see the, where, where to send their kids, it makes a lot of sense. And I think you'd see a lot more kids going to Christian and ca- other Catholic schools, you know. So um, if you're going to be prepared to can... defend yourself against this culture, I can't imagine not having been through K through 12 Catholic school. I don't know what yeah. kind of interior or, or at least a very rigorous Sunday school program that focuses on conversion and preparation because the world is definitely I had a friend who said the Berlin Wall came down because the devil was doing better on this side. And you know what he is? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the I agree with what you say, but keep in mind that that K through 12 education has to be delivered by people who are fully faithful and yes. really committed to the faith. You know, otherwise, what happens? And you see this all the time in the Catholic Church, and I'm sure it does in Protestant churches as well. The education you get acts as a vaccination against belief. And, and uh, that becomes a real problem. You know, the other thing, uh, I, I don't want to lose this idea. You, It's very important for Catholics and other Christians to know their history, to really know the past, because that is a source of two things. It's a source of humility, because we have this incredible ability to screw things up periodically. But then also, I mean, God is really active in our lives. And, and we're having this conversation despite everything that's happened in the past that was bad, because we're, you know, the faith has a, has a tremendous power to renew itself through the through the grace of God. And if you don't know your history, you become despairing and lose faith much more easily. Once you do remember, uh, it just gives you a resilience that otherwise you wouldn't have. That's why uh, Jews remember. I mean, Jews have that wonderful word, word zachor, you know, which means remembrance or remembering or remember. And it's they remember who they are as a people through history. And that keeps them um, a, as a, an integral identity. We need to do exactly the same thing. And we don't do it very well in the United States. You know, Fran, you raise a, a sensitive point with me. I have tried for a few years to find a good history of the American Catholic Church on audiobook. And it, it's not there. There are lectures, but lectures don't work the same way as an audiobook does. It doesn't take you from point A to point F. And I really don't. I'm at a loss. If you want to send me the best one that's out there that you can find on audiobook, I would like that. Yeah. Let me close with yeah. the, the best and the worst thing that I found in here. Worst thing that I found thus far, uh, Reverend Philip Larry of the Pontifical Lateran University. Just a throwaway line. All right. He's got it in there. Quote, negative forces would be the thriving arms industry in the business of war. And I said to myself, oh, gosh, 
they still don't know how the world works. Now, did that strike you when you heard that? Because it, it buys into sort of an immature view of how the world works. There isn't a war industry out there that is forcing war on the world. War is part of the fallen human condition. Does does the teacher not know that? Oh, I think he does. Yeah, I. Uh, but you're going to hear that from a lot of uh, a lot of committed priests. I think they they just have an instinct against conflict. Um, I know uh, Father Philip quite well, and he's a really squared away guy, brilliant man, and very faithful. Uh, so I wouldn't take that. I wouldn't take what he said there out of context because he's so good on so many other issues. But um, yeah, I'd love I mean, to talk to him about more, that. It was like a throwaway line. And I said, wait, wait, how'd this get in here? That's like the letter that the bishop sent to the Reagan White House when I was there, which put me over the edge on nuclear weapons, every paragraph of which was wrong. Uh, and it was signed by my bishop. Every paragraph was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody said you were infallible to you. Oh, no. Boy, did that ever prove that last word uh, for this this session. Sister Gabriel Mary Braccio. I, I love this lady, and she said the focus must be on family life. And that's where the parish yes. can come in. And I'm not sure it's kept up the way that it used to be. And I mean events and structure around the parish, largely because American life has become modular, right? We have different modules that we, we reserve. Any way to change that, Fran, that comes right to mind? Well, not in my generation. We were the ones that helped mess it up. You know, I'm being a boomer. I mean, I have a lot to account for. Uh, no, I, think it, I think people get fed up with that kind of a life. And I see it in younger Catholics right now. They just don't want to live like that because there's too much confusion and pain. And so they they are committed to permanent relationships as opposed to the impermanence that we preach in our American culture right now. So you're looking at a, uh, a renewal. You're going to there will be a renewal church will be smaller, but you're looking at 20, 30 years of, of kind of rough sledding, I think. That is the most optimistic thing. I know so many young Catholics in their 30s who've got two, three, four children, and they intend to have more, and they're living close to each other in various communities mm-hmm. in order to advance that ideal. And I know I've got a lot of large non-Catholic audience that may be doing the same thing with Protestant churches. But have you seen that, whether in Denver or Philadelphia or wherever you've yeah. been? Absolutely. The, the, you know, one of the interviews that uh, I did was with Matt O'Brien, and Matt yeah. is a perfect example of what you're talking about. Matt is in his, I think, late 30s. He's got five kids. He has, very, very com- in a very committed way, sought out friendships with Catholics in his age, you know, his age cohort who feel the same way. And, and that network of friendship. Remember, Christianity is finally a, friend, a form of friendship. You know, that's what Jesus called us, his friends. And the, the, that, that network of friendships sustains the individual friends and helps, you know, like an ink blot, have an effect on the culture. Friend Mayor, thank you. Part four will be coming up later in Lent, America. Meantime, go get true confessions for your Lenten devotion. You'll thank me for it. You'll thank Fran Mayer. His last name is is like Archbishop Chaput. It doesn't doesn't roll off the tongue. M-A-I-E-R. Fran Mayer, True Confessions. Thank you, Fran. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.